Well, welcome to a podcast about urbanism with zero white men in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to a podcast where there are no white men in the room. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> My name's Jasmine. I'm an educator, activist, and advocate. I have a bachelor's in human services, and you can find me at Jazzy Praxis on t- Jazzy's Praxis on Twitter. To me, this is a rare group of folks with experiences in urbanism coming to the table to decide how we feel about different technologies and how they impact our cities. And it's also a rare in that it's one of the few podcasts where there are zero white men at the table. I'm here because I care about making cities work better for people, and just like bigger isn't always better, newer isn't always better either. Hallelujah. Yeah. I'm Kimberly Kinchin. I'm the instigator of this as yet unnamed podcast. Uh, I was trained as a journalist, and I'm currently a paralegal at Washington Bike Law, which represents people who walk, bike, or roll who are injured by drivers. I'm also an advocate for human-centered transportation, and I'm the co-founder of NYC Bike Train and Seattle Bike Train, which were two all-volunteer-based efforts that engage friendly and experienced urban bike commuters to ease the way for new bike commuters to get rolling and feel safer and more confident on the road. Um, My Twitter handle is SheRidesABike. And uh, what I hope this program will be uh, is a program that will take a skeptical look at innovation, especially in civic life, and asking, you know, what simple and better tools might already exist to make cities of any size better spaces for people who live in them, Mm -hmm. and especially for people who've typically not been prioritized by public policy, uh, and especially in light of climate catastrophe kind of looming. Yes. And ne- <laughs> and now with COVID, uh, the, the inevitable resource constraints that we're likely to be working with. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing this because I want policymakers and especially our elected representatives to bring more skepticism to so-called innovation mm-hmm. and to consider mm-hmm. what, you know, really effective and often more simple tools we already have in many, many cases that can that can you know the tools that we already have to address our challenges if we would only use them you know i i I also want to engage our listeners who are not policymakers to also think about and maybe change the way they think about innovation and just bring a more critical uh you know set of set of questions uh when thinking about new fancy stuff definitely all right so my name, full name, is Andrew Grant Houston, uh, but my friends and people within the Seattle community know me as Ace, and I'm a licensed architect. I have my own practice called House Cosmopolitan. Along with that, I'm also an urban designer and a housing activist. Uh, you can find me both on Twitter and Instagram at the Urban Ace, T-H-E. Uh, and so for me, this podcast is that we are digging into the notion of smart cities and whether the new solutions presented to our city problems are actually better or if they're just sexier. And the why is that, in my opinion, new is not necessarily always better. And as we aim to solve a number of issues around housing, 
transit and combating the climate crisis. What we're actually looking at is what are the most impactful solutions and what are the best solutions to do this? Welcome everyone and thank you. Thank you Ace and Jazzy for embarking on this experiment with me uh, and thank you to anybody who ends up listening out there. You know, our original plan was to uh, talk about some specific topics that were related to urbanism, uh, but given the uh, very recent uh, emergence of this pandemic, Ace uh, had the suggestion that we actually focus more specifically on COVID uh, in the immediate future. And I don't, I'm not really, I feel like you might maybe do a better job of introducing that topic oh, sure. in our chat than me. <laughs> so I think part of the reason that we wanted to start this podcast in the first place was the fact that we live in a very uh, technology forward city uh, being in Seattle. Yes. And so mm -hmm. when we look at this current uh, pandemic that's happening, a lot of the solutions and a lot of the main resources around what's going on, uh, if you think about supply chain, Amazon, the fact that we are also a large health city and um, mm -hmm. even from the impact of uh, delivering contract workers that we um, are really showcasing a lot of what's happening in real time along with that because we are this epicenter that saw one of the first cases in the U.S. if not the first one. What I think is really important for us is to get this information out to other people so that we can hopefully warn them a little bit and say like, hey, look at the, the way that we started addressing these issues or did not address these issues and what we are mm -hmm. currently experiencing and what other people within the US and in other countries can learn from our experiences. So with that, do you wanna go down the list that we all contributed to? Yeah, but first, oh, yes. I would like to uh, just do a quick update. So this is a coronavirus daily news updates. I'm reading this from the Seattle Times just to give a little update on what our numbers are. So right now in Seattle, as of 3 p.m. March 22nd, uh, we have positive confirmed cases, 1,100 sorry, 1,996 confirmed cases out of 30,875 tests. The total number of deaths that we have seen in Washington state is 95, 75 of those coming from our county, King County. Cool. And so just cool. to give a little more context into what that looks like, um, we have not flattened the curve yet. We're still on a steady upward climb. Uh, I think that's something that we're still going to be seeing until we actually get more testing done and testing more individuals. That sets us up to start our COVID chat for today. So the first one being, um, we have our governor, Jay Inslee, who is going to be speaking in roughly an hour from when we are recording this podcast. And so the question right now is because Washington State is not currently under shelter-in-place order like California is, um, are we going to see that? What do y'all think? You know, I think that Jay, that Governor Jay Inslee is very set on trying to do it piecemeal style to avoid, for some people, the like uh, economic and even just mental impact of being under a shelter in place mm -hmm. and 
just trying to check off the things that we can do that mm-hmm. are honestly part of the shelter in place orders that have been going on around the country. But I think there's a huge swath of uh, people who really just want the shelter in place officially. So it'll be interesting to see if he's taking in what uh, a, a very large vocal uh, swath are asking for yes. or if he'll continue to do it piecemeal and what the motivations are. I agree that uh, he is probably trying to avoid the full on shelter in place. Mm-hmm. I have very mixed feelings about that. I'm mm-hmm. completely emotionally terrified of it. <laughs> I'm already mm-hmm. feeling the, um, I think, I mean, everybody is, but you know, I, I think today, this morning was probably the first morning where I woke up like literally feeling just um, completely overwhelmed and like physically ill uh, mm. and, and not from, you know, not from being, uh, not from having a cold mm-hmm. or not from my allergies, not from anything else, but like, I think just the cumulative effect. And so uh, it just, it feels just psychologically very constraining, let alone physically constraining. Yes. Um, but I, I absolutely, I, I understand why it might be uh, the thing to do. Mm-hmm. I am, I'm curious to learn what, both of you like where you stand on shelter in place yeah so i think um just to give a little more context for people who are listening to this um there are a different a couple different ways that this can actually happen so in california for example all non-essential services have been shut down and there's a very clear list as to what that means um actually just got a notification on twitter uh a little bit earlier and in California, uh, things that were exempted as uh, essential services for construction specifically included uh, housing construction as well as public works. And I know for us Mm. as a um, city that is also under a housing crisis at the exact same time, uh, we, those are things that we ideally would like to see as long as they continue within uh, any safety measures and uh, physical distancing that needs to happen. Yeah. So I say that in regards to a friend of mine who is currently living in Barcelona uh, and she is a designer. So they have been under full quarantine for a few weeks now. And Jazz, you also talked about a friend of yours. So she lives in Barcelona. She is not allowed to go outside at all. The only reason that she would be allowed to go outside is to go to the grocery store. And if for any reason she was seen doing anything else, she would be fine. Yeah, to um, also people can get fined for going and shopping at the grocery store together. Like two people who are in quarantine, a couple, a married couple, people who are already together going to the grocery store can get fined for walking together. And um, from what my friend said, it sounds like they're looking for uh, tightening it up even more with basically permission slips. Wow. That would be really intense. And I will say, in my opinion and my knowledge so far, is that we won't see anything like that here yet or for a while. I think um, a number of governors are kind of trying to stay behind what California is doing. And I think that's what uh, our governor, Jay Inslee, is attempting to do. Uh, but when, you say, when you say behind, you mean trying not to go f- 
go Nearly as, far as far as California. Okay. Yes, correct. Um, okay. That said, I do have friends who live in California. And so from what I've seen, they're still allowed to go outside for recreational exercise as long as they maintain their distance. Uh, granted, that mm-hmm. hasn't necessarily been the best. Um, there's been a couple of uh, just anecdotal things been told to me about going to a specific trail and there being a significant amount of people. So they need to go somewhere else so that they don't get exposed to those people. So that's the challenge is like when we see this um, press conference at five thirty, what exactly is going to be the next steps that are taken and how far will they go? Yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, so oh yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, sorry, just to answer your question, to actually yeah. answer your question, <laughs> uh, I think we need a shelter in place. I definitely support the notion of allowing us to still do outdoor recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I am someone who is uh, immunocompromised. I deal with asthma when I get ill, and specifically with respiratory illnesses as well as um, has a blood disorder. And so I've actually been self-isolating since last Sunday. So today mm-hmm. is day eight. Um, I did see a friend yesterday and gave him a hug because like, I really needed a hug. Mm-hmm. But um, outside of that, I've <laughs> essentially just been in my apartment since for this is now day eight. Yeah. How about you, Jasmine? In terms of what I... No, well, um, do you like where do you stand? Do you think that we need a shelter in place order? I've been waffling. Um, I mean, I from wh- where I'm at in my community, I don't see the Golden Gardens and all that. So up until probably yesterday or two days ago, I thought like things were going as fine as could be expected. I have like 10, 11 um, parks within a one mile walk of me. Mm-hmm. And they're all little like small dot, uh, like small parks. So no one's crowding around it. People are kind of like enjoying the space or, uh, and then moving along. No one's getting together in big groups. So I've been, what I've been seeing in my personal vicinity is people doing a pretty good job of uh, following what's been going on. But in light of what's been going on in other neighborhoods mm-hmm. where they don't have as much access to uh, quick recreational exercise mm-hmm. right. or just have are more enticed by the beach than by the play field. Yeah. Whatever. Right. Right. Uh, I think it's interesting that it is happening in the first sprint of spring with all the good weather and all that. So that adds another factor. And again, I waffle because on one end it, I would not be nearly as like happy and probably would have been closer to breaking uh, my personal, like self quarantining Mm -hmm. um, practices. If we were cooped up inside all the time, if it were a rainy mess and I couldn't, really go out on my bike rides or um, uh, socially distant walks and Mm -hmm. all that, then it would be way harder. Yeah. But at this point, seeing the vast number of people who 
aren't complying and yes. needs that push to comply because I think there are people like you who have, are on day eight, who are on week two, maybe even week four of this and have been asking all of their friends to stop mm -hmm. going outside and all that. And they're through with everyone else having summer where and uh prolonging the disease yeah 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 i i am pretty waffly too i will say that um i haven't seen i mean i live on capitol hill i have a lot of parks small and large within like probably a 15 or 20 minute walk of me mm -hmm. i haven't really seen the crowding stuff that uh yeah. we've seen at alki and i think you jazzy i think you mentioned golden gardens which is the other beach mm -hmm up north in Ballard yeah. uh, here in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so I do wonder, just like my skeptical self does wonder, um, you, you are always going to have, a, uh, how can I say this? <laughs> I feel like, mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, the recommendations to do social distancing and on the other recommendations mm -hmm. we've seen, yeah. I, I think of them as forms of harm reduction uh, we, mm, it's yeah. really hard to totally. eliminate the risk, but we can reduce it. Um, and, and so mm -hmm. that's the big, that's the question that I ask with shelter in place. It's like, even if you bring the shelter in place order down, like how much is that going to reduce risk compared to what we're already practicing right now, where a lot of, most of the stuff is on a, uh, basically on a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. Um, and even like, I think that, that these are the, the beach the, the people crowding the beaches and not keeping distance and playing volleyball in these sports where you're obviously mm -hmm. having contact with other people yep. in a, in a way that is exposing you to contamination. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, there are other ways to be recreating outdoors without doing that, figure mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. seems pretty straightforward to me. Um, and, and we can keep doing other forms of recreation as harm reduction. And, and similarly, like ACE, you decided like, okay, I've been here for eight days, but I needed a hug. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to, I'm going to accept that uh, I'm not reducing my risk a hundred percent. Yes. Uh, but that's psychologically because psychologically that's very important. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not, you can't eliminate like all psychological comforts in the name of trying to get risk to zero. Mm -hmm. Cause you're never going to get risk to zero. I am not an epidemiologist. That's just a, that just seems to be like a truth, right? Yes. Um, and that was also extremely calculated. So to give yeah, full context, yeah. that friend yeah. lives in the building next to my building. Yeah. And he was also delivering me eggs because I had ordered groceries, which is another thing that we're very fortunate to have here in Seattle is that we have a lot of options for delivering groceries yeah, and can support yeah, um, yeah. local businesses, but they were completely out of eggs when I ordered. Yeah. And so I was like, I would really like some eggs. He offered to get them for me. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to take this one risk because I know yeah, yeah. at least in terms of the virality and how quickly um, coronavirus can spread and how many people it can impact very fast. Like mm -hmm. having the one vector and being like, okay, well, that's that's it for like a week or yeah. until I see him again. <laughs> right, and right. Go yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I actually um, had a friend of mine who lives in Minneapolis send me a message yesterday. He was like, can you please go to Alki and put up a sign that tells people not to go there? Which I so agree with. It's just you. That's 
unless you position you know police at every corner or on every oh, sidewalk foot yeah so and, and so that's you know that's where if you're <coughs> excuse me if you're gonna do that's a that's my allergy cough yeah. by the way um <laughs> if you're going to do shelter in place, you gotta, I think that it, it, I hope that if that's what's coming tonight from Inslee, mm-hmm. that it's, it's a flexible shelter in place that, you know, acknowledges the, the human mm-hmm. condition, human nature. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, so. if we're being completely honest and very, uh, in full disclosure, since we're all like inside anyway, or most of us, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. um, no, it's not going to prevent every single person from doing what they're going to do because one, humans are humans, and two, Americans very much do not <laughs> like to be told what to do. Yeah, yeah. That said, yeah, yeah. I definitely believe that there's a subsect of our population that, unless they're actually being told directly by the government, like, okay, this is really, really bad, and this is legally what you need to do, they're not going to do it. Yeah. And so for those, yeah, let's try and, yes, reduce the harm, like have some harm reduction. Exactly. Well, I think there's that. And then there's also the, there might be the angle of waiting until enough people are upset and on the same yeah. board. Like, yeah. With having all of these um, press conferences where there's been suspicion of a shelter in place, but they keep denying and saying no we're not doing it yet then enough people are getting mad and then also yelling at their friends and get building up it so that we're all on the same page or most of us are on the same page all right um i think it's time to move on to our next topic which when I saw this on the list of things that we were chatting about today, I thought it was really interesting and not something I really thought about. So Kimberly, if you want to give us a little more information, um, you had posted about hospitals turning to just in time buying to control their supply chain. And this was actually from May, 2015. Yeah. So this is an article in an industry publication called healthcare finance, um, which builds itself as the leading news source for developments in the healthcare finance industry. And so it's it's basically an article that, you know, it, it does this, here are the pros and cons of using just-in-time buying. Um, and just-in-time inventory control is one of these darlings of business operations people, because basically by keeping only those supplies or products on hand that are likely to be needed or to sell in the very near future, businesses keep their costs down. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't, you know, basically it doesn't look good if a business has a lot of product inventory and, you know, if it doesn't sell fast enough, that risks turning that inventory from an asset into a liability. Um, and I just started to think about that a lot since we started hearing reports of how hospitals, you know, you know, they don't just have a limited supply of complicated, expensive equipment like ventilators, but they mm-hmm. also don't have good supplies of these cheap, cheap things that are relatively simple to produce like masks and gloves and hand sanitizer that are arguably more critical to slowing transmission. And so, um, you know, these are items that in a hospital setting are like, I I strongly suspect are never, ever going to not be useful. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just fundamental (laughs) for like the fundamental tools that were invented by, I'm, 
I'm not a medical historian, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, these are these are just like some very simple critical tools that have been in use for a long time. And I don't know that uh, all, if all hospitals that are experiencing these shortages are using just-in-time inventory, mm-hmm. but I think that we can reasonably deduce that that's part of the problem that we're seeing. This is just a quote from, from the article that I'll read uh, as it's touting the money-saving benefit of just-in-time. Uh, for example, occasionally situations arise where a patient procedure must be rescheduled because an implant due to arrive the night before is unavailable, said Spence. Then the surgery must be moved, which costs the facility more money. Mm-hmm. So that's a, you know, that's a risk of just-in-time inventory that they're not even concerned with the patient. <laughs> you know, like, is yeah. that going to harm right. the patient? You know, the article goes on to address some other reasons that just-in-time inventory could be risky. Um, but this one, this one guy, you know, there are assert- assertions that in healthcare, it, it really is just too risky to use this um, for, I, I think they do touch on patient safety as well. Um, but this, this one guy from this hospital in Chicago says, you know, he doesn't buy the notion that just because it's healthcare, running a lean operation is too risky. Anyone in any industry can use that excuse. He's quoting. Oh, and so I I feel like this is an example of, you know, certainly the perspective of this article, which is from five Mm -hmm. years ago at this point, is is they're not really even digging deep into whether this is a good idea in a healthcare setting. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the field that they're operating in and solely within the the body of finance and just looking solely at the financials. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I, I feel like, you know, it's a really common practice. Uh, Just in time inventory has become a really common practice. And so it's really likely that the the MBAs who are probably running hospitals have probably contributed to the dearth of supplies on hand. And I don't say that lightly. This is a well-known critique of our current healthcare system. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, it's run by people who, uh, view uh, profit margins over people um, and, and view view patients as consumers. Um, and I just yeah. also want to point out, you see uh, these assertions that um, consumers are the problem because they want to buy hand sanitizer and vinyl gloves from the drugstore. You know, <laughs> like it's our, it's our arrogant pursuit of wanting to avoid getting COVID or spreading it to others. Yes, which is even a completely different supply chain. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Which I, I think a lot of people well, don't necessarily understand. Um, and even I, my knowledge of like how supply chains work has only changed from my previous job where we would be designing and have like a single stream supply of all of our furniture for um, the work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Jazz, you were going to say something? I was just thinking about how there was, uh, yes, was it yesterday where some uh supp- uh some healthcare supplies like uh i think they were they were the uh 95 now mm, then mm-hmm. all that showed up at target and a reporter uh tweeted about it and um jay Inslee and the um uh, like health department went and took them and went and sent them over to uh the hospital Ooh, yeah <laughs> Sorry, it was like, oh, we had no idea it was <laughs> Sure, yeah, yeah. Our bad. Right. I think one of the other things that's alarming about this, 
you know, whether it's because of just in time inventory or not, it's very clear that um, that our our emergency response our basic emergency response systems and our healthcare systems seem unprepared to deal with disaster. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a slow moving disaster. Uh, yes. And I think that it's worth, you know, that class of professionals who manage these facilities and these practices reassessing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially because, you know, we're post nine 11, we're post Katrina, we're post Sandy. And especially in the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. we're post Nisqually quake and pre Cascadia subduction zone quake. Ooh, and right. the public has been encouraged to be prepared for all of these disasters. Yes. But now we find, we, we see very hard evidence that our healthcare system is not right prepared for the kind of disaster it specializes in responding to. You yes, could, you could argue, mm-hmm. and so it really makes me wonder how they're prepared for these other disasters. Yeah, um, I will. I just do want to footnote though that I was temping in the ICU at UW Medical Center. Uh, I was on my second day of temping mm-hmm. uh, there in that ICU when the Nisqually quake struck. Oh, and wow. I was extremely impressed with their immediate operations, like the way they just totally went into triage mode, make sure the staff are safe, make sure the patients are safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had procedures in place. Boom, boom, boom. And if you ever have to be not at home when you're in an earthquake, which I had and I had always been at home in other earthquakes before, mm-hmm. uh, being in a hospital, like they know their you know, that piece of operations they had down. Mm -hmm. I think the other important thing to keep in mind with that is um, that there are a lot of people who are just simply overwhelming the system right now. So Mm -hmm. as we talk about, like, yes, they were definitely prepared and they had like really great processes for that specific scenario. The, The thing that's very special about what's going on here and we see this in real time right now is that there mm-hmm. simply are just too many people. And yeah, that's why we talk about flattening the curve. That's why we talk about staying inside because you're reducing the exposure and the number of individuals who are getting this illness. And mm-hmm. we still see a lot of research right now is as we try and find a vaccine that more than likely 50% of the population will still get this at some point. Mm-hmm. But the goal is to spread that number out so yeah. that we don't overwhelm the system and until we get more supply in the system. Um, if we have a lot of hospitals that are running on just in time inventory, then yeah. this is going to be a major issue for the next month or two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and then of course that also depends on how quickly manufacturers can, um, can provide the supplies. And I, I, my understanding is that manufacturers also run on, you know, just-in-time processes yeah. and practices uh, for the same reason. You know, a manufacturer is also a business, you know, where, where their raw material, you know, how available are their raw materials and yeah. what is their daily production capacity. I just, I feel like in, in, a, in any business, and it's so hard not to call healthcare a business, <laughs> in any endeavor. Yes. Uh, where you're dealing with safety or health, you really cannot prioritize that kind of efficiency, financial efficiency Mm -hmm. over other things. You really, really have to weigh it much 
you know, you really, it needs to be weighed very carefully. Definitely. And I think that gets into the biggest, oh God, um, this is why I should not be looking at Twitter as we have this conversation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which what I just saw is this tweet coming out from the New York Times. It says, New York City is now the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak as of 4.35 p.m. Pacific with 12,000 cases, nearly 25 times as many as Los Angeles. And they're saying that the glaring reason is density, which is an interesting case. And we can talk about that a little bit later if we want to. I believe that, um, I don't have the source on hand, but I believe that that's been debunked because there are other other places like Singapore um, and Korean cities that are much more dense than New York that have not seen the kind of spikes yeah i'm gonna apologize for getting a slightly off topic but still on the topic (laughs) i'm just gonna say that now let's consider focusing on that next time next week i think that's good okay Uh, i think the only other thing that i would want to bring up about just in time and supply chain what i experienced today so i am dealing with some sinus issues which is normal it happens every year but of course i'm trying to take care of it as quickly as possible before it becomes something more serious Mm -hmm. because if that happens and i'm more susceptible to other things like this coronavirus Mm -hmm. and so um i went online to amazon to try and get a humidifier because i don't have one and i cannot get one until april 21st and part of the reason for that is that they have actually changed a lot of their warehouses over from having at least one of their entire stock of things to mm-hmm. being solely focused to uh, emergency needs and healthcare items. And so mm. I mm. think that's something where for better or worse, we're seeing a private entity and one that had the, co- the capital and capacity to have the store of space for items to be able to quickly turn over to help Um, in this crisis and so Mm -hmm. I think that might be something important to bring about once we kind of settle through this issue is if we switch healthcare over from being a business in the private capital sense that we have right now to something that is actually run by the government can we ensure that there's enough capital to have stocks in case of another pandemic I mean, the government can print money, so <laughs> yes. Like, well, I mean, I think that's what I think that's what Stephanie. <laughs> you laugh, you laugh, but I think I mean it's true though. Yes. And and, and monetary supply yeah. is is part of the equation. I'm not an economist, <laughs> but um, all of this moving money around on screens that we've been seeing yeah. in the last few weeks. Yeah. Like, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> so I would say, you know, where there's a will, there's a way mm-hmm. and there's a, a money printing machine. Um, and and I know you have to be careful with that because you can't dump a ton of money into the economy. You risk deflation and all sorts mm-hmm. of things, but you, you can do it wisely. And it seems to me that that would be, uh, you know, for, for, shoring up the healthcare system that that seems like a wise use of that instrument yeah to be kind to people who are listening to this as it being one of our first uh, discussions and also getting long mm-hmm. i think it's mm-hmm. uh it would be great to just do one more topic and probably chat on it mm-hmm. in about 15 minutes yeah so yeah, yeah. um i love this idea of the everyday people as the experts needed to take on covid 
So Kimberly, you put this on the list and I would love for you to chat a little bit more about it. This Twitter thread was posted by Abrar Karan, who's a physician and tropical disease expert, I believe, at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Mm -hmm. I'll just go ahead and read the first thread, the tweet. Uh, He does this thread and he says, you know, it's not going to be the quote unquote brilliance of experts that truly makes a difference right now to slow COVID-19. It's going to be the actions of quote unquote regular everyday people becoming quote unquote experts in the things we need most. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to, I guess, go and read the thread. I think Mm -hmm. that it's a really lovely, broad-minded and populist take about the role that we all play in responding to the pandemic. And I think that it stuck out to me too, because it's in some ways corresponds to the way I'm thinking about this podcast Mm -hmm. that we're producing as Mm non-experts, where one goal is to engage listeners' imaginations to consider how many tools we already have that could be readily and effectively applied without having to reinvent a fancier or more complicated wheel. Mm. Thank you, Ace, for that metaphor. Yeah. Um, and to, you know, to use the more simple and better tools. And going back to uh, Dr. Karan's thread, uh, you know, he points out uh, that in China, China turned a government receptionist into an infection control expert Mm -hmm. because she was teaching people how to don and doff gowns effectively. And his, uh, you know, he, he sums that up by saying expertise was created, not hoarded. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I think, and that puts it just so beautifully. um, We don't have to leave everything to the experts. Mm -hmm. Experts are very important. (laughs) Um, we owe them a lot. We especially owe them a lot in healthcare, Mm -hmm. but, uh, we all have ways that we can contribute to the pandemic response Mm -hmm. and to, uh, other policy responses to other problems that we collectively face. Yes. I uh, agree with that. I know that's something that I've been doing a little bit on my Instagram because that's probably the other heavy social media that I use outside of Twitter. So mm-hmm. I got some packages actually sent to me in the past week from family who were in other places and saying like, oh, we know you're going to be um, at home. Let's send you some like non-perishables. And so what I did was I actually made a video um, and had it on my story and I showed people how I actually cleaned what I got Mm, and disinfected mm -hmm. it and said like, okay, when I go actually like down to my mailbox, which is not right by my door, these, this is what I wear. This is when I bring the package into my place. Like I have it at a special place so that it doesn't get anywhere else. I wipe it down. Mm -hmm. I do so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. And so, um, yeah, just sharing that information and just, um, ensuring that everyone else has all the, um, the knowledge that they need in order to change the way that we live now. Yeah. I think that is a good segue into just talking about one more thing, which is the mutual aid networks. Mm. I think Jasmine Mm -hmm. um, put this in the notes. Do you want to take it from here, Jasmine? Well, I saw that it was there. And so, yeah, I added some of my thoughts, but, um, it's been really amazing seeing how not just people are stepping up as experts, but stepping up as uh, 
support workers and supporting their friends and communities uh, and how we're getting creative to do so with such a large uh, subset of the U.S. being laid off in the last week. I think the mm-hmm. latest numbers I heard were like a fifth of uh, Americans were out of work um, or underemployed because of this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, it's been up to friends and neighbors to take care of each other and getting creative. Like my friend was laid off and uh, she uh, needed uh, dog food for her uh, little pup pup. And mm. so I uh, went over to the local pet store as soon as it opened. And uh, uh, they had a sign out front. So it was like, uh, here's that we're practicing social distancing. And if you want a curbside pickup, just call this number. But they were a lot. And it was only like two other people in the building uh, at the same time that I was. But it was like, I went in, I found the food, grabbed it off the uh, shelf put it on the uh, counter and then did the step back six feet. And then the uh, checker went and scanned it and set up the system. And then they stepped back and we did that whole social distance ring up dance. And then I put it <laughs> up, uh-huh. <laughs> put it in my uh, bike pannier and uh, rode all the way up to uh, Wallingford to uh, drop it off on her uh, porch. And um, even beyond like, the ways that we're stepping up for our friends um, that we might not have had to before, then there's uh, just like networks of mutual aid and uh, relief funds for artists, for hospitality workers, and just kind of like makeshift unions coming in and out of mm. uh, this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so hell, it's been really cool to see everyone organized or use resources that they've had available like buy nothing in mm-hmm. new and mm-hmm. different ways uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to support their friends and neighbors yeah i think that's a really important and really great uh connection to explain to people how things that we've been using like buy nothing on facebook which is actually really popular in Seattle more so than any other city that I can think of, but Mm -hmm. um, how those are actually informal mutual aid networks and how those Mm -hmm. are the basis of something where people think about like, Oh, well, you know, we're trying something new and different for a lot of people that probably never, a lot of, I'll say like non-poor people are non, (laughs) non non-queer, non-trans people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mutual aid network. I've never heard of that. And for us, it's like, this has just been, Oh yeah. It's what we've just been doing. (laughs) Yeah. And I say that as a queer person of color, just for full disclosure to whoever's listening to this podcast. Um, And so I think in that mindset, it's like, okay, well maybe this is not something that's, far from my sphere of knowledge that this is something an idea and a concept that I can actually join and be a part of um, as we try and mm-hmm. take care of our own communities. Because I think um, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to the need to maintain physical distance, but how uh-huh. social humans are in general and people um, that we need to find new ways of helping each other, um, especially with something that is so highly contagious um, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I think yeah. You brought up a great point about like the uh, 
the physical and social distance and all that. And I think a lot of people, especially now that they have the time, they're home, and if they have the means and the ability, uh, are like, oh, this is something I can do today. And it's a way for even safely social distance. So just like connect with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Where uh, uh, having that missing from their lives mm-hmm. or having, yeah. 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 I live in a condo co-op on Capitol Hill and our HOA um, put in place, you know, we met to uh, put in place just some very basic like procedures for checking in on our neighbors. We each have like a cell of people we check in with. So there are two of our uh, neighboring apartments that we check in with mm-hmm. like one, our neighbor upstairs and then the couple down the hall. And, you know, we, made sure that, uh, you know, we added one of our neighbors who's a little bit newer to the building. She might not know as many people. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to make sure she had somebody she could check in with. Because, nice. you know, some people are more involved with the building than mm-hmm. others. Yeah. And, um, and I just in that meeting, I just felt like, oh, we're so fortunate because we can, you know, we all have our little apartments that we go back to. But um, we also... Um, do still have people close at hand and, and um, can access that assistance really readily. Um, and also, I mean, HOAs get a bad name a lot of them <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for some good reasons. In many cases, we haven't had, I mean, we've had challenges, but I mean, on the whole, I feel like people you know want to take care of the building and take care of each other. And now, uh, you know, that this was, this was a very uh, quick response that our building um, set up after uh, folks started working from home and things like yes. that. So mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I think I, I don't remember if I was complaining on the recording or not, but, you know, today was the first day where I felt really super stressed out and, um, mm-hmm. woke up just like kind of paralyzed and had a huge headache and was like unable <laughs> to do anything productive. And, um, and, and I'm fortunate, like I can work from home. Uh, the, the firm that I work for is, probably uh not as dependent on the vagaries of uh the kinds of shocks that uh, a pandemic uh meets Mm -hmm. out to people in this economy um and i can work from home and i do live in this neighborhood where i have access to parks and we live on you know really close to the co-op so we have a grocery right there and we don't have to venture that far out to do a lot of these things but i'm still feeling super stressed and restless and getting crappy sleep and like it's um and i i don't really know what my point is is that you know i feel that even in that fortunate situation it's still an incredibly weirdly stressful time and i just i can't imagine not having those things right now and Mm -hmm. it's going to be tough for a lot of people and i really hope that Maybe instead of a shelter in place order, Inslee will announce that he is going to uh, retroactively impose an income tax on Jeff Bezos <laughs> and our other billionaires <laughs> to pay for, you know, all of the things that people need instead oh, of helping like up businesses. Um, but, you know, I just, I really fear for, uh, I fear for people who are already vulnerable mm-hmm. and, 
I can't really um, imagine what it's like right now. I can only mm-hmm. try to imagine. Well, right. I mean, in that mindset, I think something to talk about for the next podcast would be from now until then, one, whatever does come out of this uh conversation and this announcement that's going to happen but then also how the the two different worlds between hotels and airbnbs versus mm-hmm. our large unhoused population here in seattle mm-hmm. and see like okay mm-hmm. let's one let's talk about that in general two is there any solution has there been any like addressing of this since then um i know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the council i believe also had a meeting today so just as we city city council um so yeah just as we know every day is more numbers things are happening quickly and yet every day feels really long and so With that being said, we'll, I think that's a a good thing to talk about next time. It's just like, okay, we Mm -hmm. know this is a thing. Has anything been addressed in seven days? Yep. Mm -hmm. Sounds, sounds like a plan. Cool. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening. Whoever's out there listening. To our current uh, Mm -hmm. untitled urbanism podcast. (laughs) all right talk to you next time next time talk to you next time